Hello, this is Dr. Dan Quara coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 3rd of July, 2020, and because I have nothing better to do, I'm going to be recording another episode of our podcast, and I'm going to be continuing a discussion of protease inhibitors, something that we've been involved in now. I think this will be episode number five, and I started off with a video lecture, so I think there's been three audio lectures since then. So let's get started with this uh, right away. So I'm going to call this simply protease inhibition and HCC. It's penicillular carcinoma. But you know that that's the basic function of these lectures is to get us to understand some of the biochemical pathophysiology, some of the underlying biochemistry of disease states, so that we can then move from there to cellular metabolism and then from there up to physiological responses, of course, pathophysiological, we're talking about cancer, and then ultimately to presentation and then, of course, therapy, right, up to the clinic. So let's get started with a paper that was published in Molecular Cancer in 2019. This is going to be volume 18, the first page is 163. This is a very curious paper. It talks about elevated N6-methyladenosine, so the methylation of a nitrogen atom on adenosine, which is a modification that represents what could be, I, quite, I would quite agree, a unique post-transcriptional messenger RNA epigenetic regulation, and it associates with an increased efficiency in translation of that mRNA that has been methylated on that nit nitrogen six atom on adenosine. And interestingly enough, that N6 methyladenosine has been linked to not only the sufficient uh, enhanced efficiency of translation of whatever mRNA have been modified in this way, but the progression of human hepatocellular carcinoma. So this molecular modification was linked to something called the YTH, and the YTH stands for three amino acids. YTH domain family two, so we call that YTHDF2. And a reduction of that, which positively correlated with poor classification and prognosis of hepatocellular carcinoma patients. And it highly correlated with HCC methyl 6 adenosine molecular landscape. So at the patho pathophysiological level, the silencing of YTHDF2 in human HCC cells provoked inflammation, vascular reconstruction, and metastatic progression. So definitely they are diametrically opposed. If you silence this YTHDF2, this protein, um, you get an enhancement of N6-methyladenosine-mediated uh, translation of genes that promote the progression of HCC. So mechanistically, YTHDF2 processes the decay of M6 adenosine containing interleukin 11, that message, and the message for serpin family E2 member 2, also known as serpin 2, both of those RNAs. Those RNAs are responsible for the inflammation-mediated malignancy and disruption of vascular normalization. 
on the way to pass cellular carcinoma. So from Gene Cards, a website I use often, that RNA, that messenger RNA binding protein, when we're talking about YTH, DF2, specifically recognizes and binds N6-methyladenosine, that's M6A-containing RNAs, and regulates their stability. The YTH domain is often localized in the middle of that protein sequence, and it functions to bind substrate RNA. In addition to the YTH domain, protein has a proline-rich region, which is probably involved in signal transduction. Now, curiously, there is an ALU. ALU is a restriction endonuclease. There's an ALU-rich domain in one of the introns of that gene that actually associates with human longevity. So that's just kind of a curious um, extra thing to know about this particular domain. Now, also, the reciprocal translocations of this particular gene and the RUNX1, which is actually an AML1 gene on chromosome 21, is also linked to acute myeloid leukemia. So this gene has some traction in pathophysiology. Reciprocally, this is the key feature here we're talking about, YTHDF2 transcription succumb to hypoxia-inducible factor 2-alpha. In fact, administration of a HIF2-alpha antagonist, it's a compound called PT2385, Thank you, pharmaceutical company, for that interesting, um, perfectly descriptive name. Restored YTHDF2 programmed epigenetic machinery and repressed liver cancer. So we already have a drug, a pharmacotherapeutic, which is going to restore this YTHDF2 programmed epigenetic modification, which will hopefully be linked in the clinic to a repression of liver cancer. Now, in that instance... YTHDF2 RNA binding protein binds and represses the transcription of genes that promote HCC. And one of those genes was actually a serpent 2 protease inhibitor. So sometimes it looks like protease inhibitors are anti-oncogenic, anti-tumorigenic. And in this case, it appears that serpent 2 protease inhibitor is involved in the progression of a pedocellular carcinoma. So you have to think about molecular species of the protease inhibitor, and you also have to think it's how it's linked to the expression of other genes and what the mechanism is. That's the whole reason I brought this up to you. So there's an expression of mutant proteins that disrupts protein folding in the endoplasmic reticulum. And when that happens, it causes cellular response that we've talked about before, just called ER stress. Terminally misfolded proteins are going to be selectively transported from the ER into the cytosol, and they're going to be subsequently degraded via ubiquitin relation, and, uh, and finally through the proteasomal degradation process. And that's all called ER-associated degradation, or ERAD. Now, in the absence of efficient protein degradation, or if accumulation of misfolded proteins in the ER overwhelms that de de degradation machinery process, Several ER response pathways can be activated. One of them, unfolded protein response, or UPR, is, of course, a signal transduction cascade pathway that activates a wide spectrum of genes in response to the accumulation of unfolded, misfolded, or even dis- or unassembled polypeptides in the ER. 
and decreases the translational initiation in such a way that only specific messenger RNAs may translate. So that's a response to a misfolding. So a paper published in, Alpha, uh, in 2012 in uh, Hepatic Monographs, it's 2012 October, uh, actually volume 12, and the uh, E number for that is 7042, talks about how mitochondrial autophagy and injury to mitochondria are present in the liver in, dig this now, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. That provides evidence that mitochondrial dysfunction is involved in liver cell injury mechanisms when you also have it linked to the A1, A2 deficiency. So the way it works is this way. Um, you could have adults with A1 ATT variation, variation. That's going to cause a retention of A1A2. And remember what happens with that? You get polymerization and aggregation. That, because it's happening in the subcellular space, is going to call and cause an ER stress phenomenon, okay, which we just introduced to you. So what all that is going to lead to is the following. You're going to get a secondary activated mitochondrial autophagy, which we call mitophagy that can actually cause an inactive UPR response. And that can lead to an A, that can be the result of A1, A2 oligomerization and after or subsequent to an active ERAD response, an ER response, okay? So you get three or four different things happening because of an increase in the A1, um, AT, polymerization. All of that ultimately leads to, because of this subcellular uh, corruption of the ER stress response and the unfolded protein response, which is what I told you was going to be occurring, because an overloading of that circuitry, because of the polymerization of all of this A1AT, because of the mutations in that A1AT, and this particular HCC background, you get what's called a gain of toxic function or gain of toxic mechanism. And that's all associated with liver injury. That can lead to an altered regulation of several genes because of an active autophagy response and then ultimately a saturation of autophagy and an increased accumulation of the alpha-1 antitrypsin polymers. To, to yield an altered regulation of several genes, driving proliferation and ultimately tumorigenesis. Finally, that can lead to hepatic inflammation, fibrosis, and at the final stretch of that pathway, hepatocellular carcinoma, okay? So again, there's, a, there's where an alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is, which is an authentic frank protease inhibitor, when there's a mutation in it, and so it no longer functions, during the processing of that mutant protein, because it didn't fold correctly, going through the ER, you trigger a mitochondrial pathway called mitophagy, which ultimately results in inactivating an unfolded protein response in the ER, which ultimately yields active autophagy, not just mitophagy, but autophagy in the entire cell. That becomes saturated ultimately you get expression of, of a whole host of genes that are involved in proliferation and tumorigenesis 
and that leads to HCC. You see there, when you have this protease inhibitor oligomerizing, it's not the activity of the antitrypsin um, mechanism. It is the polymerization of muted antitrypsin, which triggered the cancer. So that's the important thing to consider when you think about polypeptides involved in uh, different modes of pathophysiology, pathophysiology or different modes of disease state or progression of disease like HCC, don't always think about it being either a loss of function or even a gain of function of that particular protein. This is certainly a gain of function, but it's a gain of a toxic mechanism, which is the result of the mutation in the protein. And yeah, it's knocked out of commission, but it triggers this whole corruption of the unfolded protein response that the autophagy leading to, in this instance, hepatocellular carcinoma. So I want, that's why I want to give you an idea of how dye-event ontology, understand, understanding at the dialectical level how the events involved in the ontology of disease reckon the disease. And what, we, what is presented finally to us is the result of multiple transformations and corruptions of molecular activity that's supposed to be working in sync for normal physiology. Oh, those were just a couple of uh, considerations as we move now into a more generic uh, period in this lecture. This is again discussing clinical aspects of biochemistry. So now I'm discussing proteins and disease and we're discussing serine proteases. Remember that we talked about serine proteases before one of them is enzymogen activation and control. The other is the leukocyte elastase, that whole system we talked about in the immune response. This would have been probably last month. And also the entire uh, litany of pro-hormone convertases, right? Which are really critical for hormones to be activated. So that makes us want to know something more just about the serine protease. So before we, so we were just talking about the protease inhibitor, the serpents, right? We're talking about how they function. Now we're going to talk about serine proteases and how they function. So you understand the normal physiology of what these enzymes do. So when there is a corruption in their activity, even association of an anti-protease like a serpent, what does that cause in the normal physiology or does it induce a pathophysiology or does it prolongate a neutralization of an activation such that a new response can kick in and control either that response and allow that cell to kill itself like an apoptotic pathway or allow it to go to autophagy which is normally recommended except in tumorogenesis, which can induce a kind of quasi-pseudo-immortality to that tissue. Okay, so serine proteases are members of large group of proteolytic enzymes, of course. They all have at their active site a serine residue. That's why they're called serine proteases. They play, that plays a crucial part in the actual enzymatic activity of the proteolytic um, enzymology. All serine proteases cleave peptide bonds, and they do it all by a very similar mechanism of action. What they differ in is their specificity of substrate and, of course, in the regulation. So serine proteases include the pancreatic proteases, one we were just talking about, trypsin, but also chymotrypsin and the enzyme elastase, which I told you also is found in native immune cells. 
There are also various tissue intracellular proteases, such as the leukocyte elastase. There you go. There's the prohormone convertases, those are just called PCs. And then there are all the enzymes of the blood clotting mechanism, blood clotting cascade. We talked a little bit about those already, too. And that, and that includes also some enzymes of complement involved in the, the response with IgG. So many serine proteases are synthesized as inactive precursors. We call those, enzymologists call those zymogens, and they're activated by this proteolytic process, by this protease activation. So here's another interesting brand new paper that came out in Journal of Virology 2020 in March of this year, volume 94. The uh, electronic uh, signature for this paper is E01774-19. I think you can get this free online. And the title kind of says it all. That's why I just want to mention it to you. Trypsin treatment unlocks the barrier for zoonotic bat coronavirus infection. Uh-oh, what about this now? Proteolytic cleavage of the spike protein not receptor binding is the primary infection barrier for two coronaviruses that were being studied in this paper, two bat coronaviruses. Now, coupling the cleavage of the spike protein with, a, with trypsin, okay, and receptor binding, this proteolytic activation is actually possibly a new molecular target to evaluate the potential emergence of many new bat coronaviruses. Now, this is totally different than what we're just talking about. But you see how if you go and you search for where a protein is functioning in biomedicine and you search deeply and you know how to integrate your searches into the uh, refereed literature, you're going to find papers that are going to be quite outlined to the major theme. We were talking about cancer. Now we're talking about viral spread, or that is an epizootic movement of a bat virus to potentially another host, maybe human, right? So you see how these proteins can do multiple functions. And not only do they have multiple functions, even when they're carrying out their normal activity, like the serine protease trypsin, but also that their inactivation or lack of inactivation or corruption of the inactivator, like the alpha-1 antitrypsin we just talked about, can lead to a totally different disease state, like a bad cellular carcinoma. That doesn't mean that they're causal to the diseases. That means that they are associated and potentially contributive. I want to make that clear. All right. Now, here's another paper, brand new, publishing PLOS One, 2020, volume 15. This was published... Again, uh, just very recently in May of this year. So there's something called PAR2. That's an ovarian cancer-associated transmembrane receptor. And that PRA2, PAR2, excuse me, is activated by that trypsin, that serine protease. Now, indeed, stimulation of ovarian cancer cell lines with trypsin or with the PAR2, okay, this is this transmembrane receptor, activating peptide, markedly increases MAP kinase signaling, and guess what? Cancer cell division, okay? Or proliferation of cancer. Now, additionally, 
a protein called HE4, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute here. He4, which you get in mammalian milk, whey acidic protein, glycoprotein fractions. So this is going to be called a WAP family glycoprotein. Sorry, but whey acidic protein. So He4 is a whey acidic protein. Whey acidic protein or WAP family is, of course, is a glycoprotein and ovarian cancer biomarker, okay? And it's found to inhibit, okay? It inhibits trypsin degradation. So WAPs are structurally and often functionally, yep, protease inhibitors. So serum of ovarian cancer patients with high He4 expression. This is one of these whey acidic protein protease inhibitors. So serum of ovarian cancer patients with high HE4 expression reveals significantly elevated trypsin levels, suggesting that trypsin plays a tumorigenic role in ovarian cancer. How about that? Okay. He4 stands for human epididymis protein 4 been shown to be overexpressed in 93% of serous, 100% of endometrioid, and 50% of all clear cell ovarian carcinoma. And that's uh, published from the Mayo Clinics. Okay. So let's go a little bit more into this HE4. Now, this is from a paper published a few years back in Frontiers in Oncology, uh, 24th of April, 2018. So HE4 is involved in proliferation and growth. So at the clinical level, it's high in ovarian tumors versus benign. It's high in serum levels correlated with worse prognosis of ovarian cancer. Uh, in the animal models, you see a downregulation reduces tumor growth in murine models. Upregulation promotes tumor progression in a murine model. In vivo, it promotes cell proliferation and it promotes the G0 to G1 transition in the cell cycle. You also get MAP kinase, ERK kinase, Bastelolastyl-1,3 kinase, AKT pathways, and the induction of the HIF1-alpha, the hypoxia factor. Now, that's just in proliferation and growth. He4 also is involved in metastasis. It's higher in tissues from patients with lymph node metastases. Its upregulation increases metastatic lung nodules in the murine model. It promotes hepatotaxis towards fibrinonectin substrate, therefore promotes migration, invasion, adhesion and to the fibrinonectin substrate. That's all leading towards a possible metastatic movement. And ultimately, at the proteolytic level, He4 is associated with MMPs. Remember, those are the matrix metalloproteases. So you get ECM proteins, integrins, laminins, you get interleukin-1-alpha induction, you get the Lewis-Y antigen, and you also get the heparin cofactor 2 and annexin 2. All of these are built up from E4. In terms of chemoresistance in cancers that are being treated, it predicts chemotherapy response. It predicts platinum response. It predicts response to first-time therapy. That is the expression of E4. So he 4 uh, characterized ovarian cancers have been studied at the level of chemotherapy. Again, MAP kinase is involved. Um, we don't really know much about what He4 does with steroidogenesis, so that's now ongoing, but it does seem to have 
a, a suggested association with epigenetic modifications, and particularly methylation. I don't know if it's MEM6 methylation. We haven't gotten that far. And also nuclear transportation of certain growth factors. Okay. So that was just a little, again, a vignette of how you can find in the literature proteases and protease inhibitors that are in multiple categories associated with disease states, right? Not in just a simple phenomenon. So right now I want to go quickly through protease activity. Okay, this the trypsin motif. I'm gonna, it's only going to take me a few minutes. So just listen to this. Those of you that like biochemical mechanisms, you're going to dig this. So a serine-195 carries out a nucleophilic attack on a cisile peptide carbonyl, and it forms a transition state, which, of course, is going to involve a tetrahedral intermediate in three dimensions. The imidazole ring of a histidine-57 is going to bind to the liberated proton, and then that's going to form an imidazolium ion, which then constitutes general, of course, base catalysis, the process is going to be facilitated by polarizing a well of the unsolvated carboxylate anion of an aspartate 102, which will be hydrogen bonded to that histidine 57. That's going to then perform an electrostatic catalysis, and it's essential that the aspartate carboxylate does not become formally protonated to a carboxylic acid. And that, of course, is controlled by the pKa. Because if that happened, it would neutralize the electrostatic catalytic, what I call moment. So when all that is working correctly, the tetrahedral intermediate decomposes to an acyl enzyme intermediate because of the proton donation from the N3 of the histidine 57. So that's going to be a general acid catalysis. The amine leaving the new nitrogen uh, terminus of the proteolytic product, that's what the amine leaving is is released into the solvent and it's going to be replaced by a water molecule. The remainder of the acyl enzyme intermediate is going to be unstable. It becomes deacylated and that functions to reverse the reaction sequence and provides a new carboxy terminus of the cleave protein. The solvent water functions as the attacking nucleophile and Siri-195 becomes the leaving group. Okay? So the conformational strain imposed the conformational strain imposed by the tetrahedron intermediate induces that carbonyl oxygen of the participating cis-cell bond to bury itself into protein active site. And we call that an oxyanion uh, trench or oxyanion hole. Okay? So the three, the triad of proteins that are most involved are spartate 102, histidine 57, and serine 195. And I just went through the catalytic mechanism for that given uh, uh, system, okay? So I'm gonna stop here, because what I wanna do is continue on with discussing not only trypsin, I'm gonna also talk about chymotrypsin and its molecular activity. But I'm gonna stop here and uh, let leave you with the fact that we've given you some clinical associations, clinical correlations with proteases with protease inhibitors. And I've given you now how protease inhibitors function either in normal physiology or pathophysiology at multiple levels of cellular activity. And I've also now gone back and gave you just a, a very tight analysis of how serine proteases work. And that's the one you just heard. That's why they're called serine proteases, right? Because of that active serine residue.
So I'm going to leave you right now and get back to a further discussion of this, either today or after the 4th of July holiday. But again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra wishing you a happy 4th of July uh, coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. And uh, bye for now. <laughs>